The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage and explores the world of planning and strategy development. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry and hear firsthand how they made some of America's most historic decisions. I'm your host, Mark Lavin, the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy at Army North. And I'm here with Seth Barham, the Public Affairs Operations Chief. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the General Planning Podcast. As always, ready to go behind the scenes with me again is Seth Barham. Happy to be here, sir. This episode, Seth, we are talking about the differences between prediction and creation. And essentially, how do you approach competing frameworks when trying to define the unknown? What does that mean and why does it matter? So as a planner or a strategist, we are always facing some sort of a problem. And so do you predict a solution and then create a path to get to that solution or do you make assumptions about a desired environment and end state and then plan mechanisms to get you to where you want to be? We have a great episode lined up with Colonel Retired Kevin Benson, PhD, as our guest. Kevin is currently a consultant on red teaming and critical thinking. He is a retired professional soldier and taught at the Army's Red Team School at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas from 2007 until 2017. He served in the United States Army for 30 years holding command and staff positions at every level of our Army. His final assignment was as a director of the School of Advanced Military Studies at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, from 2003 to 2007. Kevin's advice is sought by senior leaders, even up to this very day. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we jump in, Kevin, I'd like to give a quick overview to our audience on your bio. So Kevin is a 1977 graduate of the United States Military Academy. Commissioned as an armor officer, he attended the requisite military courses, including the School of Advanced Military Studies. He also attended the MIT Security Studies Program as a War College Fellow in 2001. He earned a Ph.D. in American History from the University of Kansas in 2010. He was a Senator Bob Dole Fellow at the Dole Institute of Politics in 2011. He was appointed Adjunct Scholar at the Modern War Institute at West Point in 2020. Kevin writes for a number of professional journals and websites and is a regular book reviewer for the Army Magazine. His own book, Expectation of Valor, is scheduled for release in April of 2024 through Casemate Publishing. And I will absolutely blind recommend that book to everyone. So quite the career, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks for the plug. I appreciate it. Hey, sir, can I jump in real quick? <clears throat> Kevin, you bet, Top, always. Hey, thanks. I don't want to. Uh, I think that I know, but I, I want to make sure the audience knows and understands. Can you tell us what red teaming is and uh, the red teaming school? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? I sure can. <clears throat> thanks for asking. Red teaming, simply put, is the application of critical thinking methods to, as an addition or an augmentation to anyone's decision-making process. And if you don't have a decision-making process, it can certainly help reaching decisions. Um, you ask questions. You ask what if. You ask uh, what next. You challenge assumptions. Uh, you stress test a proposed plan by challenging it with, again, with some really time-proven 
methods and techniques that I had the privilege of teaching for 10 years. No, that, that... The school itself no longer exists. The great budget wars that, that followed before the current unpleasantness began, uh, it was low-hanging fruit. And the U.S. Army Staff College jumped in and said, hey, we already, we can do that. Uh, so there really is no school anymore uh, doing this. There's a handful of guys still around teaching classes, uh, but no formal school anymore, sadly. That's tough, though, but I appreciate the explanation. So in my brain, what it sounded like was when my math teacher in fourth grade told me to show my work, you guys were showing the work. You were putting things through the ringer and coming out with courses of action and, and providing that to, uh, to units within the military, correct? It's more the way I used to approach the teaching of red teaming. Some folks saw it as folks outside a staff process that would come in say nasty things about planners, tear, tear the plan apart, and then leave. Uh, and, and my take on it was, if you're the red teamer, you are involved in the planning effort from the get-go. Now, for example, we, in, our, in the Army's military decision-making process, we spend a great deal of time on determining what our assumptions are. And once the CG approves the assumptions, we wipe the sweat from our brow. We say, thank God that's over. And we move on to the next step of the decision-making process. Uh, in red teaming, there is a technique called you know, key assumptions check. And if we're going to spend time on developing assumptions, the key assumptions check at a minimum asks, what if this assumption that we're making doesn't become fact? Because we make assumptions to take the place of facts we need to continue planning. And this method is additive to the process of developing assumptions. At least that's the way I approached it, both when I was teaching and when I was helping units develop plans. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that. Kevin, that's, a, that's quite a career too. So what, what I don't want to get lost on, our, <clears throat> what, I don't, what I don't want our audience to get lost on is the number of you know, lives and planners that you have touched throughout you know, 40 years of dedicated service within the Army ranks in terms of countless military planners and professionals all the way up the ranks. We were talking a little bit about your interaction with General Book, Brooks at SAMS when you, we were students together. And so those types of relationships are important, I think, in terms of the, the generational success of where we are as an army. And so I want to say thank you for what you've done for your service and for your family's continued service. But then also I want to recognize that being a planner can be very exhausting. And so <laughs> what are some of what are some of the things that kind of kept you going, kept you, you know, going throughout the years? Maybe one or two moments or events that you can talk about where you realize, hey, this is my calling and this is my vocation. Well When I was a student at SAMS, when I left Germany and the Cold War had just started to be over and it was before the first Gulf War and I came back to Leavenworth and I really didn't want to go to the Pentagon or some of the places they were talking about, they, my assignment officer was talking about. Uh, and there, there was this thing, SAMS, that my, my good friend, Mark Hurtling, 
had uh, been a part of. And when he came to 1st Armored Division, when I was in a battalion S3, he was raving about the school. And I thought, wow, here's a chance for me to get back to troops and avoid going to other places. So I applied for SAMS with that in mind. And our director at the time, uh, Colonel Jim McDonough, had actually been a, an instructor of mine at the academy when I was a cadet. So Jim McDonough is a, was a, a great director. He would always poke us and challenge us. Uh, but what he said to us when we were leaving was he was the guy that told us about the, the saying from one of the old dead Germans that we studied, that uh, a planner, you need to be more than you appear to be. And then he would look over and go, Kevin, that'll be easy for you. Um, <laughs> and, and that really resonated with me. Uh, to, I got this wonderful year, additional year of education. It it really piqued my interest uh, in the operational art and higher level tactics. That a core is a tactical formation in many instances, uh, and that motivated me. It really did. I, I wanted to. You know, be better than folks might for do at first glance. And, and I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because my first assignment after SAMS was I went to 18th Airborne Corps. Now, and, and Mark, you know me. I'm When I got there, I got what I called the brag look. You know, we were wearing <laughs> BDUs at the time. Before anyone really looked you in the eye, they looked on your sleeve to see if you were a ranger. I'm not. They would look over at your jump wings to see if you were more than a five jump commando. I wasn't. Then they would look to see what branch you were. And if and I was wearing crossed sabers of cavalry. <laughs> and so that kind of made people look at me quizzically. And then lo and behold, I wore a mustache, which was holy mackerel. Who is this knucklehead? So I you know, just, that was the brag look before anybody looking in the eye that look, they look at your credentials that you could wear as a tab or a badge. Uh, and so that was, okay, I accept that gauntlet. You throw that down and, uh, and I'll be the planner. Uh, so let me, let me pull this string. If you don't mind, what you're sure. describing is competing worldviews. Yeah. They're competing, oh, competing assumptions that they're making about not just you, but about themselves and about the environment and about what they can do, maybe the limits of military violence. So I mean, what were some of your, what were some experiences that you had? Because I could see planners getting into that kind of situation and then just calling it quits because they just don't oh, yeah. feel like they're, they're getting there. So how, how did that, that thought of your vocation or of, of this is what you want to do mm -hmm. carry you through those years? I went to brag because, uh, it was after the first Gulf War, and the request was, we want an armor officer, because the 18th Corps had then the 24th Mech as a part of it. Uh, and lo and behold, Benson was the only branch qualified at the time, major coming out of SAMS. I'd already been a battalion S3 for a couple of years. I was the, the square peg pounded into the round hole. I took it as a challenge. Uh, and at Bragg, folks will always go by and they go, airborne, and supposed to, or all the way, sir. And I would always come back with Gary Owen. 
or that's right, <laughs> you know, or something like that. We're setting fiddlers uh, green. Absolutely. <laughs> so that was the challenge of it. I don't mean to make light of it, but I got to work too with two incredible flag officers. Uh, now, our first corps commander was General Gary Luck. And the second one was Hugh Shelton. Wow. And Gary Luck had some terrific SAMS graduates working for him during the Gulf War. And he relied on, and he there was an acceptance. They had to earn your spurs or prop blast or, or whatever you want to call it. For me, it's always earn your spurs. But we got set up for that really well, being SAMS graduates. All of that year-long giving briefings, writing papers, being challenged to put your best foot forward. I got, here's the first thing. I rolled in to 18th Airborne Corps, and the Corps was going to be the oversight headquarters for the 29th Infantry Division, Virginia, Maryland National Guard. Benson, you're the lead planner. Okay, here's the plan, because they used the off-the-shelf one from the Battle Command Training Program, so-called at the time. Gee, what's a planner do? I read the plan. Guess what? I was probably the only guy that did, because there I was working with the operational plans group when the CG's aide de camp comes running in and he goes, Major Benson, come quick. Like, what? Now, the old man wants you. So we go running into another tent. And then Colonel, I think he retired as a Lieutenant General, Freddie McFerrin, the Corps G3, is looking over his shoulder. And he looks at me and he just is angrily motioning me to come forward. And so I ran up to him and he, I went down on a knee and he grabbed my shoulder and said, they're asking the old man questions. Tell them what the answers are about the plan. Like, okay, sir. That's right. <laughs> and so there I am sitting next to General Luck, who didn't need my help at all. Uh, telling him about what the plan had said, what the specific tasks that had been included. And he carried on a conversation. And then afterwards, McFerrin told me, Benson, <laughs> don't ever let the old man be alone when these guys ask him questions about this BS plan. Because <laughs> the Corps didn't write it. They took it off the shelf. Right. So, okay, there was my introduction. Yeah, Find 1994, replace with 1995. Yeah, yeah right there, boing. Yeah. I, I think but, it's important, though. I, I think what you provided the boss, I think there was an interesting point that you made, is that you weren't answering the questions for him. You were enabling him to answer properly with the right context. Which is what we're supposed to do. Exactly. We don't think for the commander, as, as Sam's graduate. You don't think for the commander. You think like a commander. And there's a hell of a difference there. But that's what I was trying to do in providing all the details from really this ridiculously huge plan designed for the 52nd Mech Division. Remember, everybody was the 52nd Mech back then. So... That was one of the things that it really solidified for me that, boy, I'm doing the right thing. This is, if I can't be in a tank turret, this is where I want to be. Uh, 
Yeah, that's great. And I was fortunate enough to carry that over when General Shelton took command from General Luck. Uh, yeah, and I, I think was, the lesson to the planners ahead. is you never know. You just got to you know dig in. It's it's what Colonel McDonough told us. He said, "This is it's it is a high risk thing. Uh, you're going to have great rewards, but it's high risk because when the CG asks you for your thought, he really means it. And if he doesn't ask you," He's already crossed you off as not being worth it. So think again. Yeah. Sorry. Good. No. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No. I'm I'm fascinated by what you said. Right. So think. Don't think for the commander. Think like a commander. And getting down to you know why we invited you on. Right. This theme of today's podcast in terms of you know prediction versus creation. If the role is to think like a commander. How do you, when you look at the space and you look at the environment, give me some examples from your from your career where you, know, you talked about assumptions, you talked about questioning assumptions, but at the same time, though, there are, are competing ways that commanders think in terms of sometimes they'll visualize themselves on the objective, and then they look back and they say, okay, what got me here? And so for very structured right. problems, that, that may not be a bad method, but for unstructured problems, when they carry that on into their more senior careers... You know, it may not be the right methodology, which where I think your red teaming comes in and some different things. And I would even like to add a third competing framework, which is when we work with our interagency partners where they're just reacting to what's going to happen within 12 hours or 12 to 24 hours. And deep thinking is two days from now. And so how do you as a planner, how have you seen that play out? How do you try to manage that? And then are there any examples of when maybe you didn't manage it very well? Father, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. If we're going to get into the confessional like that, I've been thinking a lot of my experience as the J5 at the start of Iraq. And that in it of itself was a combination of both a structured and an unstructured problem. We did have... Uh, rather clearly articulated strategic read policy uh, objectives. Uh, and you know, perhaps uh, I was uh, a little too pedantic, uh, but you know, this is what we heard the president say. This was what was written in the central command uh, campaign plan of what the end state was going to be for Iraq. It's okay, pretty clear to me. A country that uh, renounces terrorism, doesn't threaten its neighbors, respects the rights of its citizens, uh, is secure within its own border, meaning Saddam is gone. Okay, how do we design a major operations plan to set the military conditions to attain those policy objectives? And that's what we tried to do. Uh, And then you run smack dab into the never ending. Uh, snowstorm of Rumsfeldian snowflakes that, excuse me, continue to, to ask questions, pose challenges, ask why, such that the A team, if you will, you're the go to guys and gals who could really think on their feet, were more and more pulled into answering the questions for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, or the White House. Uh, Because when the president asks a question, 
that becomes the main effort. Um, but yep. what that leaves then is that leaves everybody else to continue writing the plan and trying to think through the plan. So there's that constant tension. Um, was it prediction? Was it creation? I'm really not sure. The, the problem was we were, in my view, we were educating OSD while trying to educating them in terms of what force can and cannot do while trying to craft the military tasks that got us to the end state that policy requested. All the while putting up with, like I said, snowflakes, uh, for example. And I've, I've told this story many times before. A matter of fact, it's in a couple of different books. But when I got to Third Army that summer of 02, the first question I asked the lead planner was, what are we going to do after we get to Baghdad? Who's working on that? And his answer to me was, boss, we're not working on that. And I shook my head and said, what are we working on? And he handed me a Xerox copy of a note. Honest to God, it said, we have a brigade on the ground, period. Why can't we go now? Question mark. Signed, Wolfowitz. Wow. And I thought he was pulling my leg. I really did. Yeah, thought, it sounds like you know, a joke that a planner would right, pull on someone else. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. I thought, this is my kind of outfit. <laughs> these guys don't know me these are my and people little did you know <laughs> that's right and they're busting my chops on day one and i so i laughed and i said man that is great but seriously what are we working on and he shook his head and he said sir this is what we're working on and like welcome to reality kevin benson wow but now you didn't so, you didn't stay there, right? You, I mean, intellectually, you moved past that. I mean, as the chief. But first, Mark, we had to answer the question. Right. So isn't there know, a, isn't there a, co, a COFOMS document that you could have just you could have scanned well, back? That's what I was looking for. But what really the way we answered it was: What does it take to make to get one tank from Kuwait to the city of Baghdad over that? 600 plus kilometers, assuming moderate resistance, and that soldiers got to drink water, eat food, relieve themselves. Uh, the tank has to you know, get gassed up, all that stuff. And that was what the, the, the addition problem, the math problem, was that we cranked out. And that's the answer that we sent back. Said, this is why we can't go now, because we there's it's always a question of trucks remember the old what's the answer where you poke somebody 22 trucks and they'll jump up with 22 trucks that was always a joke that's yeah. it came down to how many trucks did we have what would it take to move all that stuff uh, how and many then we yeah, how many soldiers down. can we fit in the cattle car one more yeah, well, there you go you know all the things that I left Sam's with, my brain book, how many C-141s does it take to move uh, an infantry brigade? What can you put on a roll, roll on, roll off ship? 
all of that stuff, the, dare I say it, the science of war, we had to use those kind of facts and figures, Correlation of Forces book, as well as applying our own intellects to think like a commander for, my God, the people in Washington want us to attack all these divisions with one brigade. Wonder why that would be. What had they just seen? The, the enduring image of Afghanistan from that moment was right. a handful of special forces guys on horseback with uh, laser designators calling in, uh, in, in a indirect fire or aerial delivered fires from invulnerable altitudes, swiftly taking over a country larger than Iraq. And so there's the education. Okay, the country's I, I, bigger. There's more forces. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I, th I think what you're highlighting is the competing framework that I'm positing, right? Which is you've got, you took this approach where you made assumptions, you took the objectives that you needed and you looked at, okay, what does that mean? And how do I get there? And what are the mechanisms and what are the assumptions I'm going to make about those mechanisms to achieve those political objectives? And the competing framework that's being pushed onto you at the time is, hey, I saw that somewhere else. How do I get there? And so it's almost like that Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I, I feel like we still deal with that today in terms of not just political military you know, advice, but just even at the operational and tactical level where we've got folks who say, hey, this is what I want, but I really don't know how to get there. And, and it's such a distraction sometimes. It is, but it, I would also posit that is the reality. When we're dealing with, uh, and I'm sure you've dealt with these folks too, Mark, the 20, the 30-somethings who are the civilian staff or the staffers for the House and Senate Armed Services Committee. I know you've met some of the same folks. They all think and they read the campaigns of Napoleon and their field marshals, but they <laughs> wouldn't recognize a squad if it marched past them. Uh, and we, as professional military officers, have to learn how to communicate with them. That's why I, I hit on what force can, and more importantly, cannot do. Uh, because there's always going to be the pressure to do something. Right. Do right. something. Okay. And, okay, here's what we can do. However, what is it that you envision coming out of this? What's the better piece? We have to think like that. We, as professional soldiers need to know how to communicate. You might have heard me say it before. We have to render politically aware military advice. Now, that doesn't mean partisan. That means aware of the politics and the policy playing on the larger scope. No, that's now, right. Clausewitz says the army and the politician, exactly. the general and the politician must be in agreement on the character of the conflict in which they're about to enter. And war is an extension of policy through other means. But policy always guides it. We have to bring, keep that in, in the front of our brain housing groups, which is why I thought red teaming and red teaming and critical thinking methods were so powerful and additive to the decision-making process. As a customer of your specific work, I, I absolutely agree and endorse that wholeheartedly. It's what you, with your with your teams and in your classes, were able to do with very jumbled concepts were was amazing.
even in a short period of time. Yeah. And see there again, that kind of challenge for whatever reason, uh, as a planner, I had multiple plans assignments, but the challenge was what kept me going because you recognize, boy, this is really, it really is important. I, I really do get to advise people who really are decision makers. Now, I get to help craft proposals. Uh, and then when I had the privilege of the great privilege of commanding a battalion, I was commander. I was also cognizant of my, resp my responsibility to, to teach my, my officers about how do you think like a commander? Uh, you live the example. And all those things came back, you know, dealing with you know, really talented non-commissioned officers that it sounds cliche, but we all three of us know that we couldn't have done what we did as officers without the incredibly great NCOs that we had. Oh, to this day, I, I believe fully that the one distinguishing factor that has made our Army the greatest in all of history is the non-commissioned officer corps. I agree. My first battalion command sergeant major was Sergeant Major of the Army, Ken Preston. How about that? <laughs> I had a blast. I think he has a podcast with AUSA right now. <laughs> he might. He should. I know Dan Daly does. Oh, Dan, I got it wrong. We'll cut that out. That was no. We got to keep it in. But it's in, the recognition of that too. My between Ken Preston and Noe Valdez, who was my the, the next CSM. They were my built-in red teamers before I even knew what red teaming was. Each in his own way. Where are you sure you want to do that, Colonel B? <laughs> 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 hold on there mustang because i was in the eighth cavalry mustangs hold on there mustang let's rethink this okay sir major thank you very much i thought he was referring to your mustache sir oh yeah <laughs> but no i have a so this is seth i had a question it's a good transition from that because you brought up the uh, the nco aspect of planning and just in general so during my second deployment to, to Afghanistan on the brigade staff, so as public affairs professionals, we're always, brigade is the lowest element that we could be assigned mm -hmm. to. So we're planning an operation in, in I believe it was Northern Cockrez, but the planners had their own office. And obviously you've been in many of those where it's a bunch of, it's the iron major on a brigade staff, and then those captains, those planning captains, they're taking commands from that, that major. But they always seem to throw one sergeant first class or one master sergeant into that, into that planning room after he'd, he or she had come off the line or been a first sergeant and they're up at brigade staff, probably super happy about that. And they go, they have this per, uh, personality, but as soon as they go into the, behind those closed doors and do those long hours of planning, especially in combat, I noticed they always came out a different person. So my question is one, tongue in cheek is, what are you doing to those NCOs behind those closed doors? And two, how valuable is it to have, especially a senior non-commissioned officer in those grind sessions where you're going through the plan, talking through every different course of action, whether it's the enemy of our, or our own troops. And again, just how beneficial is it having a different style of voice in there? It is incredibly valuable. And what, what the, the nature or the climate of the plans room of you know, cold pizza, bad coffee, or a lot of chewing the, tobacco, a lot of dip spit in there. Yeah. The ham and lima beans, sea rations 
or whatever the worst MRE is. It's relying on that, but it's the constant pressure of where are we? How do we focus? What are we doing? Is what we're talking about really contributing to what we're driving at? Or are we just spinning our wheels or going down a deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole? And sometimes <laughs> my my senior NCO is the J5, uh, Joe Panor, top Panor. Top was, he would be subject to it as well. He would dig into something and then he would look up at me and go, he'd go, Jiminy Crickets. He didn't say Jiminy Crickets, <laughs> but I know this is a podcast. Jiminy Crickets. I'm now doing what your guys are doing. Stop me, Colonel B. Yes, Tom. <laughs> yes, yes, Tom. Okay, but but thanks for that contribution. It was brilliant. Oh, you know, in your face. He wouldn't say that, but you know what he said. Because uh, it was that kind of a banter. Because we had to have that kind of a relationship. Uh, it was incredibly valuable there because you know, what we all top what we also do is we empower non-commissioned officers to ask the questions that no one else is will even ask or would even think of top would come in and they'd be slamming something around and trying to figure out where the ss minnow goes carrying the the last atacum's battalion where does it go in the force flow and and he'd say he'd ask the question that brings you back on online of, wait a second, how long does it take to get through the port that you're talking about? Oops. Those, oh, those kind of things. That's what, that, that's the, and I was always blessed with superb NCOs. I realized, and I'm not pumping sunshine on anybody because we all know that the NCO Corps has some knuckleheads just like the officer oh, yeah. Corps has knuckleheads. But the guys and gals that ended up near in plans shops uh, i never dealt with a knucklehead they were always really well grounded and, and kept all of us knucklehead planners grounded so i don't know why we got on that subject but that's the the truth of it right. and again that was the people was why i really enjoyed maybe i'm a masochist but why i enjoyed being in in, in the plans office and being responsible to present plans uh, and talk about courses of action. You answered it perfectly. I thought it's just a whole different world in there. I would go in there and it's been, sometimes they'd be like, close the door. We can't see the light. Like it, you don't want to be out of their cave. And I know that, that the planner for Army North is looking at me with a, a certain look in his eye right now. So I'll shut up and pass it back to him. But I appreciate <laughs> it, Kevin. You bet, Top. No worries. The first rule of Fight Club is there is no Fight Club. <laughs> there is no Fight Club. <laughs> That's violating the the you know the solemn trust that we put, we gave them. Kevin, real quick, you've been very gracious with your time. We very much enjoy it. Before I get to our last question, which we ask everybody about book recommendations, what I'd like to do is say back to you what I think the big kind of takeaways are. Push back on me where you think I've got it wrong or further explain maybe where I didn't quite hit the mark. And so what I heard you say today was you need to think like a commander, don't think for the commander. And that's about understanding the competing frameworks that are going to exist to the approaches. In order to get through that, you need to communicate effectively at all levels and echelons. And then at the end, I think your biggest takeaway has been stay motivated 
and then learn to appreciate the impact that you are having on the broader team. And so with that, uh, push back on it. And then what are you reading right now? What do you recommend? It can be fiction, nonfiction. Okay. I would say to what you stated, yes. And this is a continuing personal education process. Because when I came out of SAMS as a major, I was uh, a different person by the time I was a colonel and I was planning at the field army level. And you don't get there without personal study. You can't just stop. Okay, I went to SAMS, that's enough. No, you got to keep on reading. You got to keep educating yourself and putting your experiences into perspective. Uh, that's how you learn to think like a commander. Like getting now, a PhD after you uh, you retire from the army? Well, yeah. you're a lifelong yeah. learner. That's the best way to put it. If you're going to be a planner and you're going to apply red team thinking methods, you got to be a lifelong learner. That's what our profession demands. The profession of arms demands. So what am I reading? First of all, let me tell you, the fiction that I'm reading is a very good friend of mine recommended a a military science fiction series, the Lost Fleet series Mm. by Jack Campbell. Boy, it's fun. Uh, It it, it really is. It's just, it's science fiction. It's set out in like the 3000s or something, but it's very cool. It's just fun to read. And it's still educational because you can see uh, things like, wow, I, I remember doing that. It's on my list now. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. They're very good. They really are. Other stuff, the recently released New Makers of Modern Strategy by Hal, edited by Hal Brand. I Have I finished reading it? No, it's not one of those things, books that you pick up and read from one cover to other. No, that's a like a textbook. It is, but the essays within it, Brand's put together uh, just incredible people to write chapters. And you can pick it up, pick a chapter that relates to what your task you're working on and get some insight. It's phenomenal. It's just so much richness that you just can't go cover to cover, right? You got to go back and absorb. That's right. You have to read. Yeah. yeah, You have to read one chapter and then you got to reflect. A book that I just finished reading and it's dated. I think it came out in 2002, but I literally just picked it up at a bookstore. The Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors by James D. Hornfisher. And it's about the destroyers, destroyer escorts, and jeep carriers that fought the battle, the naval battle off Samar, defending the north flank of the Leyte, or the, yeah, the Leyte invasion. Destroyers, destroyer escorts, fighting cruisers, and battleships and the astounding courage of these sailors. Uh, what a great book. Uh, it just is incredible. I'm surprised it took that long to actually tell that story. Uh, although I think Samuel Elliott Morrison in his book, The Two Ocean War, 
mentioned it, but not not to the degree that this book is talking. There's a passage in there that was confirmed where there's a U.S. ship is going down and she's still fighting. And the Japanese actually ceased fire and assembled on the deck and saluted the Navy ship as it was going down. <laughs> it's just incredible book. Um, yeah, the mutual respect across folks of the truly, profession of arms. Truly. Um, Just War Reconsidered by General Jim Dubik. Yes. A phenomenal book. Talk about learning how to communicate with policymakers. A must-read book. Just General Dubik was my monograph director in SAMS. He's just terrific. Well, let, me, let, me, let me add one more must-read then, okay? And that is Expectation of Valor coming out <laughs> in April. I don't know if you can share anything. I don't know if you want to make any news. At least today. tell us how you can, our listeners can get it, can acquire the book when it comes out. Oh, I don't know yet uh, where I am in the process of the, the You've the written book. it, right? You started it, is it at least. done. <laughs> it is, everything is with the edit, with the publisher right now. Good. And it is going through the Casemate Publishers Editorial Review. That's fantastic. Next, Congratulations, the, Kevin. That's well, awesome. Thanks. The next step is when I get it, when I get the results back, I have two weeks to uh, make their correction or address what they've pointed out and then get it back to them. Uh, think fast, write fast. Yep. And it'll, like you mentioned, thank you. It's going to be released in April of 2024. I'm excited for it. Yeah, and maybe we can get you back on when it, once it releases to talk about the book well, and what went yeah. into the, the writing process and things like that. Thanks our our goal much. is to have 1 million listeners by then. So it'll be worth uh, your okay. time. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks very much. I really appreciate the, the privilege you offered me. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate it. Have a great day, sir. Thanks, Kevin. You bet. Thank you very much. 